1: The FT.
2: On the show this week, cohort studies. Just as randomized control trials are the gold standard for the evaluation of new drugs, cohort studies are the best way we have
3: of looking at risk factors for future ill health. Update on the MMR Andrew Wakefield saga. To me, it's not so much about vaccines and not so much about autism itself. It's really about the integrity of science and 3D printing with
4: biological materials. What we're doing here is replacing the traditional 3D printing materials, such as polymers and metals, with biological materials, such as live cells. And with these live cells, our hope is to be able to print living tissue. I'm Andrew Jack,
5: and you're listening to FT Science. Diana Garnham is with me within the studio, as is our guest for this week, the journalist Brian Deere, who will be talking shortly about the link between MMR and autism claimed by Andrew Wakefield, the discredited researcher. And Clive is on the line, back from his trip to Washington. Clive, how was your trip?
6: It was great. I was attending the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, annual meeting in Washington. That's the world's biggest general science meeting. It covers an extraordinary variety of subjects. So I met scientists covering everything from solar storms to the genetics of antisocial behaviour from the benefits of bilingualism over monolingualism for the brain to bioprinting, about which we'll be hearing a bit more later, as you said.
5: Great. we look forward to hearing more about that later in the programme. But let's start this week with Duncan Jarvis from the BMJ. This week, it's all about cohort studies. Over to you, Duncan. Thanks, Andrew.
2: This week sees the 65th birthday of the granddaddy of cohort studies, the National Survey of Health and Development. Started in the UK just after World War II, this study followed over 13,000 babies, all those born in a single week in England, Wales and Scotland. It has helped establish the link between birth weight and blood pressure, breastfeeding and cognitive ability, and social status and mortality. Just as randomised control trials are the gold standard for the evaluation of new drugs, cohort studies are the best way we have of looking at risk factors for future ill health.
7: So we collect information as they live, what they do in their daily lives. And then we link this information to things like uh, stroke, Parkinson's disease, heart disease, whatever you're interested in.
2: Tobias Kurth, director of INSERM, the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research, who has just received a major grant to start a new cohort of French students.
7: We are now focusing on a group of students, so younger adults, uh, where we believe that risk factor changes or lifestyle habits really um, already are the risk for later things that happens in their life. It's a very challenging uh, group of people to study, obviously, because they're, they're not stable in terms of the location. So we need to develop new techniques to really keep them in the cohort and to keep collecting information from them.
2: It's not just difficult to follow all the members of a cohort. You also have to account for the differences in their lifestyles. A whole branch of statistics and epidemiology has grown up around making the results of these trials as valuable as possible. And, when they work, they are invaluable. In 1950, Richard Dole published, in the BMJ, his research on the smoking habits of British doctors and proved the link between smoking and lung cancer. Other studies, like the Framingham Heart Study, based in small town Massachusetts, have shown the effect of cholesterol, smoking and blood pressure on heart disease. Professor Kurth's new study is planning to look at public health issues that are gaining recognition in modern times.
7: For example, we are looking at migraine headache. Migraine has been linked with other comorbidities such as stroke and heart disease later in life. We would also like to understand what the risk factors for mental diseases, when do they occur? Are there specific risk factors in the young that we need to focus on early in life? We also would like to focus on sexual transmissible diseases. How can we identify them? Do we need to do something early? What about um, vaccination and so on? So lots of questions here, lots of specific hypotheses that we are testing in the young, and then also looking at the risk factors of future disease that they are developing early in, in their life.
2: So, Professor Kurth has big plans for his study, but we may have to wait another 65 years to get the final results. Back
5: to you, Andrew. Thank you, Duncan. Diana, exciting prospects and lots of progress in the past through these sort of cohort studies. Should we do a lot more, do you think?
8: We get mixed messages. Can I ask a really layman's question here, though? Does it matter how big they are and how long they're conducted for to really make the results meaningful? Because I hear a lot about cohort studies and then five, ten years later, I cease to hear about them anymore. And I remember one of 80-year-old women that faded out as they didn't survive. There's an awful lot of cohort studies going on, but do they really complete and produce good data?
5: I guess, obviously, something like the Framingham study in the US was extraordinarily important in understanding the link between heart disease and lifestyle and diet and so on. But uh, there's probably an awful lot where there are so many confounding factors and the difficulty of of following large populations over long periods, of course, just physically tracing them as they move and so on must be very difficult. Any thoughts, Clive?
6: Well, I'm just wondering whether the real contemporary form of a cohort study is something like the UK Biobank which I'm taking part in, where half a million middle-aged adults are being followed and all sorts of lifestyle, environmental factors are being traced, as well as their genetics. I mean, I think that's the way cohort studies are going. And I'm not sure this French study, without knowing much more about it, almost sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it?
5: What do you think, Brian? I mean, do you think it's desirable that more people should, in principle, participate in those sorts of long-term medical studies? Oh, for sure,
3: the more the merrier. I suppose one of the issues is that, um, as time goes on, methodologies improve and questions change, and you can't actually go back to the beginning and alter the way you've constructed the study. So I suppose with the passage of time, quite a lot of these studies come to be looked at in a different light and uh, cease to have their usefulness. But as you say, many have proved to be extremely useful.
5: Let's move maybe, Brian, now to, to the second segment of, of the programme and discuss your extraordinary reporting over the last few years which exposed the bogus claimed link between MMR vaccines and autism and the publication of those claims by Andrew Wakefield. When you started digging into this whole story, did you expect it to grow up into something so big?
3: No, people keep asking me that question. I've just come back from Toronto where I was there for five days and people asked me that question. One after another. No, it was just a routine assignment in the beginning. It was just uh, to look at uh, the issue. There was a television programme coming out at the time. This was way back in late 2003. And I had absolutely no idea where the story was going to lead. But uh, just reading Wakefield's research at face value, I could see there was something wrong with it. And if you compare the reaction in the UK, but also in North America, how different and how oh, lively? Times have changed. In the UK, I think people basically take the attitude that uh, the doctor behind this research, Andrew Wakefield, is uh, is reputationally dead. Uh, last year, avid consumers of Science News might recall that he was found guilty of a whole raft of charges by the General Medical Council, and he's not appealed that decision. In North America, in the United States, Canada, and also in uh, other English-speaking countries, and also now parts of... Europe. It's very much a live subject and uh, the scare rages on in those countries. And
5: apart from the scientific controversy and the general perception, the frustrations, the desire obviously for parents with autistic children to want to find some sort of cause to blame, some sort of factor. What do you think are the broader lessons to come out of this whole saga?
3: Well, for me, I've always thought that the MMR issue and the uh, discovery that uh, the work was fraudulent. Just last month, the BMJ editorial board declared the uh, work not just to be false, but to be fraudulent. The lesson is really, uh, to me, is not so much about vaccines and not so much about autism itself, although I take a great interest in those subjects. It's really about the integrity of science. And I think quite controversially, I take the view that um, this tells us that scientists cannot simply be assumed to be telling the truth. When you think about it, athletes taking part in the Olympic Games will be subject to random drug testing. If you eat food in a restaurant, that restaurant is subject to random tests for food hygiene. Hospitals, schools, they're all subject to random investigations by regulators to ensure that what's going on there is to the required standard and the public Is protected. But in terms of uh, laboratories and scientific research, whether it's being performed by industry or whether it's going on in academia, there's absolutely no scrutiny. And I personally believe that the peer review system, which is not a test on truth or accuracy but is actually a truth of plausibility, has to now be supplemented by some form of pilot scheme at least whereby scientists could believe that there is a chance, no matter how small, that one day they will get a knock on their laboratory door, their secretary will come in and say there are people waiting in reception to begin a process of uh, audit of what's going on in that laboratory. Dinah, what do you think? How on earth do you tackle when there is apparently
5: fraud in scientific findings, for example? Who should pick up on that?
8: I think there are a mixture of responsibilities here. I think there's the employer, your colleagues your co authors funders, all of them have or should have procedures in place that you know, monitor the outputs of the research but I think there 's also two issues as telling the truth on your research, but also whether it 's an area of your expertise and It seems that for me've Andrew Wakefield crossed over on both of those. And one of my other concerns is that a lot of scientists are seen to be experts in fields in which they don't have the expertise as well. So there's a wider issue here about the personal responsibility and personal professionalism of scientists as well as all the people who are employing or funding them.
5: Clive, of course, we have a so-called Committee for Publication Ethics. We have ethics committees, although the trend at the moment in the UK is trying to peel back some of the red tape to accelerate clinical trials, isn't it? How do you think we need to find a new balance?
6: I think the balance needs still to leave room for the lone maverick. Now, someone who perhaps is telling the scientific truth and is not hasn't got the conflicts of interest that Brian Deere showed that Andrew Wakefield had. I mean, I always think back to the mad cow disease of the late 1980s when one or two scientists, microbiologists, said, hey, this could cause human brain disease, and the scientific establishment scorned them. They turned out to be true in the form of Variant CJD. Uh, Brian, I don't know how you think we can keep that sort of work going while excluding people like Andrew Wakefield.
3: I think Clive, both yourself and Diana really, uh, with with great respect, are in a sense talking the language of some years ago. Uh, no one ever suggested that, uh, that Maverick should be prevented from expressing their views and we've also for years heard people talk about the need for better standards and for colleagues to take more interest and for employers to scrutinise research coming out of their institutions. The issue of Andrew Wakefield wasn't about a Maverick. Ultimately The issue was that he was making up his research. I think we've now reached the time where these kind of general exhortations and, if you like, old boy chat and and debate about mavericks and such things are of the past. And we have to say, well, what does this work tell us about the integrity of science? If you could get away with making up studies on something as high profile as vaccine safety affecting children's health throughout the world, what else is going on in in laboratories uh, around the world? world that is not being scrutinised because I think Andrew Wakefield was working in a culture and he understood that that culture would allow him to do certain things and I think there's a lot of other people doing it as well and it needs to be dealt with. Brian thanks very much.
5: So from one form of perhaps creating something out of nothing to, to another entirely different one 3D printing. Clive you spoke to Hod Lipson from Cornell University about this exciting research.
6: It was one of the most interesting sessions I went to and we actually I saw Professor Hod Lipson making an ear as he was talking. It wasn't actually a, a biological ear, but it was to show what you could do. So afterwards, I started off by asking him to explain more about what 3D printing actually involves when it's applied to biology.
4: 3D printing in general is a fascinating technology that's been taking off in the last couple of years, and that's the ability to fabricate three-dimensional objects by depositing material layer by layer and gradually creating a physical construct. What we're doing here is replacing the traditional 3D printing materials, such as polymers and metals, with biological materials such as live cells. And with these live cells, our hope is to be able to print living tissue ready for implant.
1: Which cells and which tissues are you working with?
4: With collaborators Larry Bonassar and Jonathan Butcher at Cornell University, we're trying to explore a number of different tissues. We're starting with relatively amorphous uh, tissues such as cartilage and bone in order to make things like uh, a meniscus for a knee, an ear, the cartilage in an ear for uh, reconstructive um, medicine and heart valves.
1: So let's think how this would work in practice. And I know you're nowhere near clinical trials yet. You've just done some animal work. Say I needed a new knee. You'd take some cartilage cells or other stem cells from me. You'd grow up some new cells, and you'd put them into a cartridge and print them in the shape of a knee. How would it all hold together? I mean, because there's no scaffold.
4: That's right. So part of the challenge is to create an ink where the c- cells uh, live in, and that ink should be soft enough that it can be printed with, some fluid enough it can be printed with, and yet uh, structural enough that it can hold the shape of the target uh, object. So finding that balance is part of the challenge. It also has to be compatible with the cells and so forth. So the way this would work is that you'd have to donate some original cells. These cells will be cultured, put into the special ink, and then printed according to an electronic blueprint derived from a CT scan or an MRI scan.
1: And then you have this shape, presumably you need to incubate it in some way because you're not laying down the collagen, which is the main material in knee cartilage.
4: Exactly. So once the, once the construct is printed, and depending on, on what biological cells uh, are there exactly, but if it was cartilage, for example, you would need to incubate it for a while in special conditions, show that uh, the, the cells uh, proliferate, they produce the intracellular matrix, and after uh, a while, perhaps a few weeks or a few months, uh, it may be ready for implantation.
1: What organs will you go on to?
4: There's quite a, a lot of need for skeletal orthopedic tissue, such as uh, bone and cartilage, and there's plenty to do there. Uh, one of the really interesting areas beyond that are things like heart valves, uh, which is again there's a lot of need for uh, replacement valves, and valves are right now are produced by synth- from synthetic materials with all the rejection and wear issue. But if they could be made from uh, organic material, that is. Uh, uh, natural, then we can, uh, we'll hope that they actually uh, will be will we, we retained and, and keep on working for a long time. So heart valves, they're also, they uh, are made of multiple cell types. Spinal discs are another example where it's a, it's a skeletal orthopedic construct that would benefit from having multiple cell types. That's where we're heading in the, in the near term.
1: So you'd have a few cartridges for the different cell types and lay them down in turn.
4: Exactly. Actually, we're looking at laying them them down in parallel because the cells are arranged in a complex intertwined structure that you have to put all the cells simultaneously, layer by layer, in order to obtain the target structure. But that's basically the process that uh, would take place.
5: So, Clive, you actually saw this 3D ear being created in front of your eyes, did you?
4: Yes. Now, as I say, they weren't
6: doing it with living cells. It was slightly a fake, but it was still absolutely amazing seeing this printer, like an inkjet printer, but working in 3D, whirring around and building up a very convincing human ear.
5: You could pick it up afterwards?
6: You could, yes. And I mean, it reminded me of the picture of the human ear on the back of a mouse. Do you remember? Which a lot of people use a cautionary tale about science going too far. But, of course, this won't go on to a mouse. When it's perfected, it'll go on to
5: a human. Certainly a sort of area of research is difficult to be entirely fraudulent in. At least you can see the result. But uh, I guess it could be an awful lot of years before it's actually turned into clinical application.
6: Well, you know, when you ask a researcher how long it's going to be, the standard answer is five to ten years. And that's what these people are saying. Five to ten years before it reaches the clinic
8: and if you pick up the fraud issue, then the, the danger will come in if they make an overclaim on the safety and the longevity of it and the cost and those sorts of aspects as part of their research rather than the being able to do it.
6: Yes, it'll need to be carefully monitored. And as you say, I mean, the people I saw AAAS are bona fide top university researchers. But this is an area where there could be scope for charlatans overselling. Yes, I agree.
5: A question of ear no evil, I suppose. So that's all we have time for today. All that's left for me is to thank my guests and contributors, Brian and Diana in the studio, Duncan Jarvis from the BMJ, and Clive on the phone. FT Science is produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.